Well, today's scripture reading is a selection from the book of Proverbs. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Uh, So, you know, last Sunday... Uh, we kind of took a break from the series Proverbs of Wisdom for Living um, because I felt the need to kind of pastorally address uh, uh, where we've been and, and where we are uh, with uh, the pandemic, uh, which is, you know, not where we want to, you know, have been or where we want to be, but is just where we are. And, and so I, I just wanted to do kind of last Sunday, share where I was with all that and um, and, and do that most biblical of things, which is to lament, just to pour out our, you know, our disappointment, our frustration, um, our, our anger, our pain, uh, all of that. Just give that to God. And so I felt like last Sunday was an appropriate opportunity to do that. And now the, the theme of this week, when we're talking about wisdom for living, the theme this week, obviously, maybe you noticed that thread running through the passage and the sermon title, it's work. That's what we're talking about. And, and as I was thinking about work and, and reflecting on these Proverbs and, and the theme of work in Scripture, uh, I was reminded also, like, not to just dwell on COVID, but that I think COVID is one of those things that has made us think a lot about work over the course of this past year. There's been all of these questions and, and conversations that are percolating, and they've come up to the surface over the course of this past, you know, year and a half now, this national conversation we're having about work. There's the question of where we work. Right? Whether we work from home or whether we have to go into to some place. And although this concept of, of working from home for a lot of us is relatively new, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, basically everyone was working from home or at home or on their land. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, you know, still for many people, uh, even before the pandemic, you know, stay-at-home parents, uh, that was the reality. You work where you live. So there's the question of where one works. And then there's the divide between those who can work from home and those whose job requires them to, to actually physically show up to a place and thus put themselves more in harm's way, which led to, I think, what has been one of the most um, unfortunate kind of uh, categorizations that, that we've come up over the course of the pandemic, and, and it's been kind of foisted upon us, and that's the divide between essential and non-essential workers. You know, 
think about what it means to be labeled as non-essential. And what all this reminds us of is, is that what we call work, it's always been something that's essential um, to every single one of us. But it's also something that is very deeply fraught. Our relationship with work is complicated. There's all sorts of questions that our work raise. There's all kind of complexities that, that arise as to what counts as work and what should we expect from our work. And, and above all else, in the midst of our work, where is God and where are God's purposes? There's uh, the famous quote from uh, Frederick Buechner, who's an author who um, uh, I normally love, you know, basically everything he says, but he says, you know, your calling is where your deepest passion meets the world's deepest need. And, and, and is that something that we should expect from our work? Because a lot of times when we're doing our work, there's no deep passion that we feel, and we wonder what need, if any, we're meeting. And so we know that work, too, is it's much broader than the concept of a job. Lots of people work without getting paid. You know, there's lots of volunteers in this church who do lots of work, and they don't get paid. Stay-at-home mothers and fathers, they, worry, they know about working without getting paid. And their essential labor, I think one of the great insults in the way that we've structured work is that, you know, that essential labor that you perform at home doesn't even account towards the accrual of your social security benefits at the end of your life. So you're actually punished uh, uh, or not rewarded by staying home and engaging in, in caregiving. And so I think that just says something about how we value that role of work. We got schoolwork, we got housework, we got yard work, we got volunteer work, we got working out, we got blue collar work, white collar work, and then there's the whole work of not having work, and so you need to work to find work. So what is work? I think at its most simple work is anything we do that requires effort in order to produce a particular result. No, if we're in a physics class, of course, it, it has its own kind of textbook definition of work. You know, the amount of uh, force that's needed to be exerted upon an object of a particular mass to, to make it move. But, but we know that for us, work has a much more spiritual, a much more existential definition. And so as Christians, when we read Scripture, we discover that almost from the beginning, this is a book that has a lot to say about work. That it's not just something that we do, it's something that we were made to do. In the beginning, in, in Genesis, God creates everything and, and, and creates human beings. And what, what are these two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2, if, if not different stories about God doing work? And then God gives us a job. In Genesis 1, that job is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. That's the job description. We're, we're God's kind of middle managers in creation. And then in Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we're gardeners and custodians of creation. So we see that as human beings, we're created to work. Our souls need to work. So why then is it so often that, that our work doesn't nourish our souls, but it just sucks them dry. 
that Monday through Friday or whatever your work week is, it's not this kind of, uh, you know, really this time that we're living, but just the time that we're slowly dying. So scripture has something to say about this too, because we have, yes, Genesis 1 and 2, God is working and we see that we're made to work and we're given this job description and this amazing role. But then Genesis 3 also is about work, the fall of humankind into sin. We're after the fall, you know, Adam and Eve, they're expelled from the garden, they're expelled from paradise. And it says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. And so we see then right at the beginning of Scripture the paradox of work. That, that work is, is both really the setting uh, for when we can feel most alive and, and most like we're living into our God-given mission and purpose. But it's also where we face, I think, most pertinently the, the broken nature of our world. And so as I was preparing for this sermon and I'm reflecting on the, the meaning of work, I had occasion to read... I think it's my third time, a wonderful book uh, written by Nancy Nordenson. And she is most famous for being the mother of Eric and the mother-in-law of Katie Nordenson, at least around here. That's what she's most famous for. And her book is entitled uh, Finding Livelihood. And I think itself, it, it exemplifies what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, you know, what, what this whole series is about. It's about wisdom for living. Right, what do we do? How, how do we live when the rules don't necessarily apply to us and we're in new situations? And, and, and so Nancy wrote this book as her own kind of wisdom literature. Her spiritual autobiography of her struggling to find, um, well, uh, to find livelihood. In work, not as we imagine it, but as it is. Finding God not just in the work that we choose, but in the work that's given to us. Finding God in the midst of, of dreams that we pursue, but also dreams that are deferred. And I love what she says at the beginning, which, which I think captures the, the dual nature of work that we see in Scripture as both belonging to the, uh, the, the pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian worlds, the worlds before the fall and after the fall. She says this, livelihood, explaining why she chose that word, livelihood, the word gathers up and bundles together the simultaneous longings for meaning, satisfaction, and provision. In the fullest sense of the word, livelihood means the way of one's life. It means the sustenance to make that way possible. It means both body and soul are fully alive thanks to what has been earned or received by grace. On one level, we make our livelihood. On another level, we keep our eyes open to find it. I admit that work... Even good work for which we are grateful and love has a shadow side. It's not about disengaging from unsatisfying work or finding a new job. Instead, it's about developing openness to meaning and beholding meaning where you find it. It's about watching for signs of transcendent reality and participating in that reality even when work fails to satisfy. And so as we listen to what the Proverbs have to say about work, I, I want us to also keep that broader framework in our mind as I'm talking about these things, about livelihood and all that it entails and all that it says about work at its best and at its worst. It's most meaningful and it's most dull and mundane. 
And so with that, there's, there's four things that I see in Proverbs that I want to touch on this morning when it comes to thinking about, you know, working wisely. There's the necessity of work that we see, the dignity of work, uh, the ethics of work, and last, who are we working for? So first, there's the necessity of work. Now, in, in the reading that Matt did this morning that starts in Proverbs chapter 6, uh, right away we meet sort of the punching bag of work when it comes to Scripture, and that is the sluggard, the person who doesn't work. You know, the person who isn't working hard, they are hardly working. And so what Proverbs makes clear when it comes to work is that work is not a necessary evil, but it's a necessity for survival. At its most basic level, work is something that we engage in because we need to survive. We need to provide for ourselves and others. In the world that's, that's pictured in the Proverbs, I mean, this is a largely agricultural economy. Someone has to work the land so there is food so that people can eat. We need to work to live. Someone's got to do it. And so this is something, though, that, that, that the sluggard cannot understand or just will not bring himself to understand. Proverbs says, whoever works the land will have plenty of bread. There's that connection between works and the necessities of like. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks strength. A slack hand causes poverty. And that's this idea of a, a slack hand is basically like you're idling. You're not doing anything. But the hands of the diligent make rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Our scripture is picturing the work of providing for a people, and it's something that is an all-hands-on-deck affair. Everyone who is able has to participate in it. So there can be food on the table, and there can be roof over people's heads. And so we learn a lot from how to work from, from the slugger as, as the antitype, as the negative example of what work is like. So the slugger teaches us what to do by showing us what not to do. And so what do we see with the slugger? The slugger never starts everything, anything. Instead of being industrious like the ant, he sleeps the day away. The sluggard is not self-directed or self-motivated. Unlike the ant, if he's going to do anything, he needs someone watching over him, looking over his shoulder, ordering, ordering him around. The sluggard is always late, never on time. While other people understand the seasonality of, of work, as it rotates around the agricultural year, the sluggard is oblivious. The sluggard is full of excuses about why he can't do something. Instead of going to work, he says, there's a lion outside. Safer to stay inside. The sluggard has what we would call a bad work ethic. Now contrast that with the wise worker. Now the, the, the father of sociology, uh, Max Weber, if we know anything about Max Weber, at least some of us have probably heard of this concept that he developed, which is called the Protestant work ethic. And Max Weber was trying to explain, you know, why did the countries of Northern Europe, like why was it in those countries, uh, uh, especially, you know, England and, and even the Netherlands and then in Germany, why was it in those places that the Industrial Revolution, which really led to kind of the modern capitalistic economy, why did it happen there and not elsewhere? And his theory was that there was this thing called the Protestant work ethic that, that took kind of a, a, a reformed or Calvinistic version of Christianity and, and put it 
in service of work. So this emphasis upon personal discipline and personal responsibility and this sense that whatever one did, whatever one's job or vocation was, could be done in service to God. And it's been a, a controversial thesis uh, since he produced it, but what, what, what we can see is if we don't have a, you know, maybe a Protestant work ethic we can look to, at least in Proverbs we can see the, the sketchings and the outlines of a biblical work ethic. And so what's a biblical work ethic? It's, it's about getting started rather than just endlessly procrastinating. It's about being self-directed rather than always needing to be supervised and told what to do. It's about showing up ready and on time rather than being tardy and unreliable. It's about making whatever progress we can instead of making excuses. So the truth is this, that even though we have this fraught relationship with work, work is a necessity. And so if it is, we might as well do it and we might as well do it well. We might as well have a work ethic even as we wrestle with some of the ethics around our work. Because not only is work necessary, but it also possesses inherent dignity. That's my second point, that there is a dignity in work, a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment that you've done something worthwhile, that that somehow you have contributed to, to the greater good. You've earned your keep one of the criticisms that I think has validity that was leveled against the, the great society programs of, of the late 1960s is that one of the things that it did was it disconnected prime age workers from the labor market. And thus it created an underclass of people who were given not dignity but dependency. In Proverbs it speaks to the dignity of work. It says, do you see the one who is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And so scripture, it dignifies work, even common work. One of the hallmarks of the aristocracy in the ancient world is that it was the class of people who didn't have to work. They were above work. Work, manual work, was seen as profane. It was debasing because it's, it's, it's hard, it's nasty, it's toilsome, it's boring, it's dirty. But the biblical view of work is totally different. It says that we were made to work, and the kind of work it talks about is the kind of works where you get your hands dirty. It says that we were made in the image and likeness of a God who works. And so the worker, he or she has nothing to be ashamed of. He or she can stand before kings. And so the Bible is actually the original, you know, pro-labor, pro-worker document. So wise work is necessary, it, 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 it possesses dignity, and it also is ethical. If we think about it, work is one of those arenas where we are constantly confronted with ethical choices about right and wrong. Uh, you know, is our work itself ethical? Is how we are doing it ethical? Are we treating our, our, our fellow employees fairly? Are, are our bosses fairly? Our clients? Our customers? All of these questions are constantly raised at work because work carries with it this, this really inescapable moral responsibility. And Proverbs speaks to this about, about, about the ethics of work. It says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. You know, here we even see animal welfare 
This is not some just, you know, squishy, modern, liberal concept that, that belongs to groups like PETA. It has deep roots in the biblical insistence that work itself carries with it the responsibility to engage in it in a righteous way. It's where things like, you know, fair pay and worker safety and benefits and environmental impacts and animal welfare, all of those things come into play. And it's not just a question of, is our work righteous or not? But even if it is, is how I am engaging in it, am I doing it in a righteous way? In a way that's honoring to God by loving my neighbor and by stewarding his creation well. So wise work asks us to consider not just whether or not our work has value, but also, you know, about how we engage in our work. How does that reflect our values? So this brings me to my final point. This ultimate question. Who do we work for? Proverbs says, Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. And so the lesson here is that our work is never done for ourselves alone. It's done for the sake of others. So even if we own our own business or we're a sole proprietor, we're trying to add some kind of value to the world for our customers, for our clients. If we work in in the public sector, we're supposed to be serving the public interest. If we work in the private sector, we're serving our employer. If our work is unpaid, if it's volunteer work, we are still doing it in the service of, of other people, another institution, another organization, as a parent, a caregiver, a volunteer, a friend. All of us, no matter you know, where we find ourselves on the, the proverbial organizational chart of, of the world, we are all working for someone else. All work is itself a form of service. One of my favorite episodes of, uh, of The Simpsons, I think it's from season six, it tells the story uh, of, of Maggie's birth because the family is looking at the family photo album and they say, you know, Bart and Lisa are like, why are there no pictures of Maggie? And so then you flash back to the story to explain why. And this is a great episode. So at the time, it was just Homer and Marge and Bart and Lisa. And uh, Homer got his dream job to work at the bowling alley. And so he got to tell Mr. Burns, you know, he works at the, the, the Springfield nuclear power plant, and he got to tell Mr. Burns to take the job and shove it. And he literally, as he leaves, he burns a, a literal bridge as he is leaving the job. It's one, of the great, it's one of the great scenes. He just drives away and burns a bridge. So then he's so happy, he's celebrating, and him and Marge, they snuggle, and then all of a sudden she finds out that she is pregnant with Maggie. And the bowling alley job is not going to pay the bills. And so Homer has to go back, and he has to go to Mr. Burns and literally grovel for his old job back. And he's given the job back. Uh, but Mr. Burns puts this sign on his, uh, on, on his workstation to remind him of his servile state. And it says, uh, it says, don't forget, you're here forever. And so what Homer did was he took the baby pictures they had of Maggie, and he covered the letters. And, it, and, and I'm sorry, it's corny, but I love it. And he covers up the letters on the sign so that it reads, do it for her. And I love that. Because ultimately, as Christians, we believe that since everything belongs to God, ultimately we're working for him and we're working in service of others. And this is not some, you know, treacly sentiment. It's a hard-won truth 
for people who are, you know, in the fields picking our food, who drive trucks over endless miles of open road, who change diapers or bedpans, who unclog drains, who read the same book to the kid for the hundredth time, who file TPS reports, who deliver mail, who fill spreadsheets, who drive buses, who nurse babies, who teach kids, who fill prescriptions, who run cash registers who wait tables, who write code, who make lattes, the million other things that constitute work in all of its unglamorous yet holy reality. Nancy Nordenson says, on one level, we make our livelihood. On another level, we keep our eyes open to find it. My point of view has long been one of transcendence. And I'm hoping now that focus helps me make peace with work. I don't use transcendence to imply a pep talk mentality or a message of conquest. Transcendence instead speaks of a quest. I'm on the lookout for signs of the transcendent, God-filled reality that buoys the universe and enfolds our quotidian activities in vital participation. Juxtapose this point of view with the nagging question that, that all of us ask from time to time about our work. Is this all that there is? And that's as good a definition of faith as I know. Because at the end of the day, all of our work is an act of faith. Faith in the God who gives us this day our daily bread. Faith in the God who takes our our meager offerings and makes from them an absurd abundance. Faith trusting in the words of the psalm that, that unless the house the Lord shall build, the workers toil in vain. And so that our work is not in vain. And that what we're doing, however insignificant or meaningless, if we're doing it as a service unto the Lord, God is going to take that and enfold that into his greater plans and purposes for this world. Even if we can't see it. Even when it seems so unimportant or uninspiring. Faith in the Jesus who who didn't let the cup pass from him, but said, not my will, but thy will be done, and who did his work of reconciliation on a Roman cross, and who cried at the last, it is finished. You know, Homer, he did it for her. Jesus, it's corny, but he did it for us. Which means that our work, it's never an attempt to save ourselves. It's never an attempt to ultimately define ourselves. Work can't bear that burden. But at its core then, it's our attempt at gratitude for what's already been done for us. To contribute however we can to the work God has set before us until we hear at the last those words. And here the the King James rarely surpassed. And here it hasn't been. These words that we hear from the Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That works for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.